Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. In our greatest game series, we try to cover some of the greatest college games of all time. But we're going all the way back to 1924, November 8th, when the Illini of Illinois with Red Grange invaded the University of Chicago and faced the team that Amos Alonzo Stagg was coaching. Truly the GOATS host, Oz Davis, joins me as we join in our cast of Orville Mulligan sports writer to tell the story of the November 8th, 1924 game. This is the Pigskin Daily History Dispatch, a podcast that covers the anniversaries of American football events throughout history on a day-to-day basis. Your host, Darren Hayes, is podcasting from America's North Shore to bring you the memories of the gridiron one day at a time. So as we come out of the tunnel of the Sports History Network, let's take the field and go no huddle through the portal of positive gridiron history with pigskindispatch.com. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, my football friends. This is Darren Hayes of pigskindispatch.com. Welcome once again to the Pigpen, your portal to positive football history. And as we've been trying to do, we've been trying to present you with some of the greatest games in football history, uh, a lot of college, a lot of pro games. And one of the games here on November 8th that we're celebrating is a great game that uh, you know didn't make the, the top 150 with ESPN in 2019, but it is one of the most outstanding games of the probably the 20th century. And I have some help today. Uh, a lot of help. Uh, one that we're going to have bring in right now is Oz Davis, our good friend. Oz Davis, welcome back to the Pig Pen. Thanks. Glad to be here. Um, now, you said you you started the show with football friends. Do I have football friends now, too? I love football. Oh, yeah. Hey, if you, okay. you come on here, all my football hey. friends are your football <laughs> friends. They're, they're, we're all friends here. We're all friends. <laughs> I got it. I don't know if I have any football friends. I am not surprised. I should say right off the top that this game did not make the top 150 um, college games because look, the thing is ESPN does these these shows, these polls, whatever, and it's completely dependent on video. I mean, they did, you know, they released it during the COVID era, like 2020 or so. They released the thing with Bill Belichick was on the show. Mm-hmm. They did the top 100. Okay, how do you not have Jim Thorpe in there? Well, it's right. easy. They don't have any video. Right. So, of course, they don't have. But that's really the only reason why they didn't. I mean, I mean, it was it was not like he didn't make the cut. It was like he didn't make the cut because they couldn't do anything. You know, this is not Ken Burns. They're not going to show you a still image and pan over. You know, they just they don't want to do that. So as a result, we didn't get to hear on that particular NFL 100, I think it was called. On that particular show, we did not get to hear Bill Belichick's insights into Jim Thorpe, which I would have loved. Right. Well, I, I guess maybe we should reveal the, the game that's in question here because we really haven't sure. said that yet. We have, we have a November 8th, 1924 game. Uh, and this was basically for the Western Conference, which would eventually become the Big Ten, which was a big deal back in 1924, one of the few conferences that were going. And this was a game where the University of Illinois was going to face a very tough uh, University of Chicago team coached by Alonzo Stagg. Of course, uh, Illinois was coached by Bob Zupke, some some of the most premier coaches of that era. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Zupke versus Stagg, right? Because you have Stagg on the other side. And uh, the funny thing is, is too, I love this. I love looking at these old games uh, involving Chicago and Illinois and these teams. The West, right? <laughs> Again, just to give you a little historical perspective, this is Illinois, the West of the U.S., right? <laughs> okay, so just a little background there. Now, of course, at that time, you know, uh, what is it? The whole West Coast is part of the U.S., right? California, uh, you know, Oregon, Washington. But most of that space in between is still, you know, if not uh, unincorporated, still mostly unpopulated by, let's say, Americans. So 
you know, pretty funny that this is like the Western part of the U.S. at this time in terms of population centers. Uh, I always like that just to bring you back to this. But at this time, of course, you know, uh, this is college football is so much bigger than professional football. And again, like this is this is another kind of a disservice that is done when ESPN or other such lists can't put games like this in the top 100, the top 150. It really gives you a different perspective. The truth is, is that college game was the NFL at this point, both in terms of popularity and really in terms of quality. Uh, the best coaches were there. Um, you, you know, uh, the college games were institutions. In the first 15, 16 years of the NFL, Every single year, the roster of teams is different, oftentimes significantly different from year to year. But in these college games, these college programs are starting in the 1880s, 1890s, and continuing through the 20s, 30s, 40s. I mean, obviously, they're much more popular than any sort of pro or semi-pro league because they have, guess what, tradition, which is so much a part of both college and pro. And CFL, if you're into that, for that matter. But it's such a huge part of football. And this is the thing, is that at this time, you know, college game is much, much bigger. And this game is a battle of, what, an undefeated team and a one-loss team. Um, The game sold out 35,000 people, which was pretty big crowd at this time pretty huge deal at this time out there at the sticks in the west <laughs> pretty big game and just very i guess i you know i guess espn doesn't consider it so but just very historically significant very important game in college football history i mean i guess if we found it so important that uh, you know those for you have been living under a rock for the last year oz and i have uh joined forces of have the number 80 productions team and we have a, a little audio drama that we like to call orville mulligan sports writer well we don't only like to call it that's what it's called and it takes <laughs> place in the 1920 sports and we have uh you know a, a fictional character that goes to actual sporting events that are happening all over the country in 1924 is where we've started out this first season and we have some scenes which you're going to be hearing some excerpts from throughout this uh, podcast here uh, of some of those scenes uh, of the game that uh, you know Oz's excellent script writing and our actors their brilliant uh, acting are going to present to you to take you as close as we can get you to that game in 1924 on November 8th. So uh, something else to, to stay tuned here for the, as we'll t- tell the story of this great game. With just minutes to go before kickoff, the last stragglers comprising the 35,000 of this positively ebullient crowd filling Stag Field in the wondrous windy city of Chicago. Come to think of it, Stagfield may be the warmest place in all of Chicago, with below freezing temperature for most of the city. If you're out there in this, let's hope you're bundled up in that trusty overcoat. Orville Mulligan Sports Writer is kind of an outgrowth of the Sports History Network in that one of the things that you tend to learn if you start doing sports history, especially about America, is how vital the 1920s are, how rich they are as just this breeding ground for the evolution of sports in this country. And it's no coincidence that when we decided to start doing stories in the year 1924, that this game crops up. I mean, this is, I mean, again, you're talking about one of the eh, five or six biggest deal college football games uh, in the 20s, in the decade. And you're talking about probably the second most popular sport in America. I mean, boxing is pretty popular. But other than baseball, I think, like, I mean, I mean, football definitely draws the biggest crowds uh, other than baseball in the U.S. So, 
you know, you're talking about one of the best games between two top teams in the second most popular game in America in the most important decade, you know, of sports history in the U.S. And wow. I mean, I mean, you know, it's like we like to say nowadays, a perfect storm. Yeah. And, you know, we, we talked about, you know, we have two great teams. You have two legendary coaches facing off against each other uh, for the Western title. And but maybe we should mention the sort of the elephant in the room or should I say the ghost in the room? Uh, pretty big player is playing in this game and a pretty pivotal piece in this game. The thought on nearly every one of these 100,000 football fans is certainly centered on Red Grange. How will he be stopped? Can he be stopped? Now in his junior year, Grange has drawn full crowds eager to see him add to his outstanding body of work for the University of Illinois. Grange has left nearly every defense he has faced in utter ruin with the power of an ox and the swiftness of a deer. Far too much for mere mortals. Red Grange, um, in by 1924 season, he's in his senior year for Illinois. And I was talking to Darren about this before the show. One, one of the interesting things about researching Orville Mulligan, and in fact, researching like any sort of sports history from the earlier part of the 20th century, especially, is just the way how different the reportage is. In those days, Far less emphasis on the post-game reporting. Uh, most of your smaller newspapers, most of your non-New York Times or San Francisco Chronicle or whatever, simply ran with a wire report. And you would really only get the wire report of the biggest game. In fact, geez, Darren, I mean, I mean, you and I grew up in sort of the late eight, uh, 70s, early 80s, where we first became sports fans back then. And you remember this. You would open the sports page on Monday, and yeah, there'd be a whole page devoted to college football. But some games got the big write-up, and some games got the paragraph, and then some games. And then at the end, you just had that list of 100 scores from all across the country with Slippery Rock. And, and schools like that, right? And so, but back in those days, that was the norm. You might not ever hear anything about the game afterwards. And as far as a preview, uh, this was often about, not so much with big college football games like this or the Major League Baseball games, but you would often get the preview piece, which was come out and see, you know, X versus Y, you know, so-and-so has been stud for this team this year. You know, seven touchdowns, scored all the points for his team. You know, back in those days. Ah, here comes Boss Stag. Good morning, gentlemen. I will be keeping this brief today, as our boys have much to do before tomorrow's game. Starting with the obvious, Coach. Who do you have that can stop Red Grange? Grange is, beyond all doubt, one of the greatest players ever developed. But let me remind you, esteemed members of the press, that football is a simple game. It is a team game. On Saturday, 11 men will be on that field at one time and as one team. And it is the responsibility of that single unit collectively to prevent any advancement toward our goal line. You ask who we have to stop Red Grange? And I answer that the University of Chicago has 11 of this country's finest players to do so. What's your response? Mr. Staggs is certainly willing to try every means at his disposal. I predict he will ultimately be unsuccessful. Uh, but never mind that. I'd put my man against his boys without Red and still win. Is Red going to play after getting his chomper knocked out here today? It's a tooth, Artie. It's not like he tore up his knee. Jeez, he got back in the scrimmage ten minutes afterward. Coach, if Red gets any money from the tooth fairy, would that be a violation of NCAA rules? <laughs> <laughs> The whole game plan has to be about stopping this one guy, which is basically what a couple of preview pieces were talking about. It's basically all about, can this defensive line stop Red Grange? And uh, spoilers, they really couldn't. No, and uh, you know, really, <laughs> that the you know, Grange is a, really an amazing story, how fast he really 
rose to national attention. You know, he was a, known as a great back to people that played against him. People were aware of him. Uh, but 1924, you know, he had 723 yards rushing, a 5.6 average, and 12 touchdowns during the whole season. Uh, but there's you know, a lot of writing about it. He really didn't gain national fame until October 18th, 1924, in the Michigan game. And he sort of went off and, uh, you know, just <laughs> derailed the, the Wolverines uh, you know, defense to, to put, tore him to shreds. So it's only a couple weeks before this November 8th game that we're talking about uh, today and celebrating uh, occurred. So just the, the last two weeks before this game, everything is red, you know, Harold Redgrange, Harold Redgrange. It's the guy is uh, very well known and uh, very respected and both, both sides, people that were for Illinois, or people for Chicago were respecting uh, the great Wheaton Iceman. Yeah, he he was he was the first real like household name out of football. He was the first one. Now, of course, everybody in football, even sports fans, knew about George Gipp out of Notre Dame. Uh, you know, of course, Thorpe. Everybody in the game knew about Thorpe. I mean. Dwight Eisenhower even mentioned him after he became president. He played against him, and he remembered what a badass he was. Coach Stagg, this weekend two professional games are being played in Chicago. What's your opinion on the National Football League? You must be an out-of-towner. All the local boys here are well-versed in my position on that subject. For your edification, however, I will state the college-educated should seek employment benefiting a gentleman, not by peddling physical skill. I tell you here and now, the wisest thing I ever did was turn down an offer to play in New York back in 88 for $4,000. To cooperate with professional football games, especially on Sunday, is to cooperate with forces destructive to the noblest elements of amateur sport. Grange became sort of that DiMaggio. He became sort of that Michael Jordan, where even people who don't give a toss about sports know who he is, are even sort of interested in what he's doing, you know, on the field. He was really the first one. And in a lot of ways, his decision ultimately to go pro was one of the real like jump starts to the NFL uh, in the in the mid twenties, late twenties. Still, you're only here for one more season. Have you not given a thought to going pro, fellas? The only thing I'm thinking about lately is hitting the pillow after Coach Zupke's workouts, and then dreaming of running over a bunch of University of Chicago tacklers. The team I want to play for is on this practice field right now, Illinois. Rangers getting looks from professional football clubs. How will we stack up on the pro league? Well, I couldn't care less. I realize it's a free country that Mr. Harold Edward Grange can pursue whatever enterprise he wishes after he leaves this school. But simply put, football is not a game to be played for money. A guy like Grange going to this would-be national professional league really gave a lot of credibility to the league because the truth was a lot of these guys in the 1890s, 1910s or whatever are finishing their college football career and then becoming a lawyer, you know, <laughs> and then, you know, running for office because of course the best teams were usually what Ivy leagues, you know, and certain other, you know, academic schools like Penn State. I mean, these were, you know, the biggest schools. This, this, is, this is the transition, 1920s, just about, from the emphasis being on amateur to, hey, you can make a career out of this in something other than baseball. <laughs> and Grange was one of the pioneers in this respect. Yeah, it's uh, extremely interesting. And and like you said, the, the newspapers had quite a bit of preliminary write-up coming onto this. And something that really caught my eye, and this, uh, you know, in today's uh, game of football, we, we'll laugh at this, but uh, Chicago, Stag was counting on uh, two men, uh, one of their captains with the last name of Gowdy, who was 199 pounds, and another one, a uh, guy named Henderson, 206 pounds. 
that's who's going to stop them. They're a big defense alignment at those, you know, that's a wide receiver weight. And nowadays, you know, <laughs> and that's what's a, it's just kind of funny, you know, what a hundred years ago, the, the perspective on football they had in the size of the, the men at that time. And uh, it's oh, kind of entertaining. It's insane. it's insane. I mean, this is one of the things I really love about just doing sports history, even informal, you don't have to have a degree or whatever is just, Ultimately, this stuff reflects back on life. You know, I mean, again, like like this is 100 years later, but that's like five generations. It's not that. And I mean, but then you look at, you know, these pictures of these guys, you see the weights or whatever. And it's just like, man, we've evolved as a species. <laughs> I mean, that's what it feels like. You know, it's just like, wow. I mean, you read about these guys in the 1870s playing baseball. And I mean, wow, it's like you got guys in your softball league, your city softball league that might be able to play with these dudes. You know, it's just, but, you know, it's not their fault. It's just, you know, they didn't have like weight training. <laughs> they didn't have diet programs. You know, we did this bit. I think this was one of the bits that maybe one of our researchers contributed to this episode. Hey, Red, says the reporter, how do you keep in such great shape? Dude, I haul ice in the off season. And can you imagine? I mean, yeah, this is how LeBron James keeps in shape, right? No, he pays a guy a million dollars to prepare his meals for him. Brad, how do you get in such great shape? Ice. Coach keeps us fit during the season, but in spring and summer I do a lot of ice carrying back in Wheaton for Mr. Thompson. Lots of folks live upstairs in Wheaton, and those blocks are good and heavy. Grange was actually a pretty meaty guy, right? I mean, he he ended up, I think, in the pros, he he ended up about two twenty. But even at this point, he's he's almost at two hundred, right? He's he may even be over yeah, two hundred. Yeah, he's right around. I mean, he's a he's a pretty size, big guy. Yeah, big guy for that that era playing. Yeah. He was one of the larger guys on the football field, I'm sure, this day on November eighth. Uh, but mm-hmm. especially when you have these, you know, two hundred pound guys that are can be. Uh, counted on to, to stopping him uh, yeah. Yeah. and don't forget even in those days in those days you could run interference too which is which is something that died like once they started wearing helmets but that's basically um you know your blocker is setting a pick for you right so you can have like usually the halfback and fullback your fullback takes the ball your halfback just runs in front of you and just like knocks the guy over in front of you that's it you know, and I mean, you can't do that. Anymore. It's amazing that you talk about that that interference because uh, a couple of these articles are talking about uh, his main blockers, main form of interference. Uh, yeah, a guy named Rokasek. Well, he was uh, a little bit bad. You know, had a sore ankle, wasn't practicing a lot. They were a little worried of how his play was going to be. Uh, the quarterback of Illinois, Harry Hall, he had an injured ankle as well. So. And they weren't sure what's going to go along with that. And another guy named McElwain had a broken hand. So you had some key components around Grange that were ailing a little bit. And uh, you know, there's some speculation that, hey, you know, maybe uh, Chicago, the Maroons will have a chance against the, to stop him because some of his key, the key, other key elements of that offense are uh, not up to 100 percent. Yeah, and it's so nice having all this information because that really gives insight into why you know Grange takes so much time to get going all eyes of the university of chicago team as well as the 35,000 strong assembled here today are on university of illinois junior all-american halfback red grange it is grange who has drawn crowds across the country due to his outstanding body of work in his now two and five ninth season in college football and the kick is off It's fielded by Thomas at the 22. He takes off immediately, and oh, what a hit. He'll be feeling that one in the old collarbone for weeks. Stag's men began the proceedings on a mission. Chicago has run the field with ease on this opening drive, and it's been first down after first down for Stag's men in maroon, led nearly perfectly on the field by Abbott. And the first, first quarter is almost scoreless in this game. In those days, not 
so, you know, unusual to have a zero zero first quarter. But I think with teams like this, uh, a lot more is expected in that first quarter. So, yeah, I mean, you can put that down to just this slow start down to the injuries um, on the Illinois side um, and sort of being an equalizer for Chicago. First down and goal to go. Abbott hands in the ball to Thomas, who goes for the edge on the right. He fumbles the ball, and it's picked up by Illinois. A colossal effort for all the nothing by the Maroons here, and the Illini will take over deep in their own territory. That first drive of Illinois played as did the entire first quarter. Two attempts by Grange proved futile, as did one from McElwain. So... With Grange, like, running the motor, this was an offense that could turn it on. I mean, this was an offense that could you know, run up. Back in those days, this is one of the major changes in the 21st century, and this is one of the things that Bilicek really changed about the NFL. For so long, and it seems obvious to today, today, whereas we think football is a game of points, duh. So much of football history was about coaches planning for time of possession, right? Football is a game of field position, they always used to say, right? And this is one of the innovations today, right? And that was one of the differences is that teams like Illinois, teams with the, you know, what they call point of minute offenses in those days, teams like that were constantly winning the field position battle, which is what the game within the game was about. So, you know, again, like it may be, it may be on appearance, you know, by the stats, of which there are very few from those days, that, you know, it's a nothing, nothing ball game. But, you know, Illinois might have been dominating. They weren't in this game because the first quarter was. Pretty much this type of war back and forth, lots of punting going on. So it wasn't necessarily that. But in these early games, too, a lot of these games are just about winning field position. You know, you go way back to the 1880s, 1890s, you see these games, you know, four to nothing, six to nothing, or whatever. It's just like, Jesus, what a boring game. But it's just like, yeah, you know, one one side, one team might have been on their side of the field the whole game. You know, this might have been a demolition, in fact. That's true. You go back in that era and probably back in the 1920s too. the punting for field position was a big part of the game. Teams wasn't uncommon for teams to punt on first down just to get that field position. If they're backed up inside their 10, well, they don't want to run offensive plays like we would today. No, they're going to kick the ball out of there and play some good defense and uh, try to win that field position. And your punter was your quarterback, which guess what? Same as today was probably the best athlete on the field. Probably not always because in this game we have Ray Grange who didn't play quarterback, but who was often the guy who could be counted on to run any number of plays, right? The option, right? He had to run the option and he had to be the punter, as we know. And of course, this ultimately culminated in Sammy Bob in the 40s, who was basically a Hall of Fame level at both punting and quarterbacking. So, but by then the game was a bit more modern. You didn't punt so often on first or second down. And we've talked a lot about, you know, Grange and Illinois' offensive power. Well, Chicago was really up to the challenge this day. Uh, you know, Coach Stagg had a, a great game plan. He couldn't eliminate, you know, Grange, but he did find some ways for his team to, to stay in the game. And, uh, you know, they, they end up scoring three touchdowns themselves, but more of a, a team effort. And uh, that's really what, you know, Stagg was all about. You know, his, uh, a lot of what he would do to find an advantage over his opponent was, you know, things uh, like putting a man in motion and some of the schemes that he he would do the the huddle, you know, he's responsible for, but he, he did a lot of innovations uh, pregame to get his players prepared and to stay with this very powerful Illinois team. Lining up at the one, everybody at the line with only McCarty back for Chicago. Hardy gets the ball, a big pile up, and touchdown, Chicago Maroons. Stags 11 extended their lead in the second quarter. Having their way with this Illinois defense. Here's Thomas on the handoff. Bargo throws the block. 
Touchdown, Chicago Maroons to make 13-0. And now 14-0 on the extra point from Abbott. And there was a couple trick plays in this game, actually. At the end of the second quarter, there is a fake punt, which, and then what ensues is, according to the the write-up, is a triple pass that ends up in the hands of Grange, who runs around the right side and scoots in for the touchdown. Okay, that part I understood. The problem is, is that very, very often when you're reading write-ups in these days, when they say pass, just pass, that can mean a lot of Right? That can mean just nowadays when the quarterback would take it, take that half step, and just kind of rugby pass it back to the halfback. They would call that a pass in those days. So this triple pass might have just been like a double reverse. Right? right? It might have just been that. So I just basically, that just didn't make the, the game in Orville because I wasn't quite sure what was going on. So I didn't want to get it wrong. And so I just didn't do it all together. So far, ladies and gentlemen, this game has been all Chicago with nary a peep out of Fred Grange, the man everyone came to see. Naturally, Grange would not be kept down for long. Grange breaks free into the backfield, and he's finally taken down after a gain of 27 yards. And oh, Goodman just bounced off Grange there. Range on the run, now passing, and Galavan with the catch, and a few more yards to the 14. Range is doing it all now, putting that ball right on Galavan's breadbasket on that throw. With fate now the mistress of Illinois, the denouement of this drive was easily foreseen. It's Range, Red Range for the touchdown to put the visitors on the scoreboard. If football is a battle, the second half was pure trench warfare. The bodies strewn on the field as neither defense refused to surrender more yards of ground. And 33,000 were roiling en masse into a frenzy. Now fourth and very short for the Illini. Hall will take it himself. Right side, and he is going nowhere! Oh, what a stop. Hall just hit a wall of maroon jerseys that looked like the entire defensive line cut through at once. And once again, an Illinois drive goes nowhere. The mighty tug of war continued as time wound down on the third quarter. Chicago, for a fleeting moment, appeared to gain the advantage when... Maroons with the ball on their own one-yard line. Abbott takes the snap, doubles back, pitches it to Kerwin, and it's a punt! Kerwin lofts it high, high up, and no one's back for Illinois. Everyone is sent chasing, and it's Schultz. Schultz recovers for Illinois, and he is piled on back to the 20-yard line. Stagfield fairly well shook like a volcano, pushed to the bursting point with anticipation. The explosion imminent, and the color of molten lava is red. Illinois breaks the huddle down a touchdown, knowing they're a few ticks away from going scoreless in this third quarter. Grange gets it from Hall, a huge hole on his left side, and Grange is through! He beats McCarty at the 45, and he's off the 50, the 40, the 30, the 20! Later on in the fourth quarter, there was a more mundane kind of situation where uh, they faked the punt and just um, ran it to get a first down. So, you know, just the kind of thing we'd see nowadays. Um, Not so unusual in that respect. So, I mean, again, like, you know, it's called football. (laughs) The foot used to be a lot bigger part of the game. Uh, than it is nowadays. After the final gun sounded, the 33,000 in attendance left satisfied with a full afternoon's worth of football and a bravura performance turned in by a legend. Including the Mercurian 80-yard run in the third, Grange had piled up exactly 300 yards on 30 carries. 
On their parts, Stag Chicago Maroons may have managed the first blemish on the record of Zupke's fighting Illini, but Grange and his still undefeated side left Stag Field on this day bloodied, not broken. Or it's a violent game and there's a lot of bad things that happen uh, during those punting and kicking situations where well, yeah, you can you can see it if you look back at this game and and you know again there's not too much video of this but there is some video from the 30s and 40s and stuff and i mean we, we were talking about guys being smaller well guess what they were slower too and so those hits on the kickoff return first of all it just doesn't happen that where the guy catches the thing and then he's just slammed, right? Because again, these guys are much slower, but kicking the ball travels just about as fast in 1920 as it did in 2020, right? I mean, mm. kicking hasn't improved that much uh, in that respect. So the guy has time to catch it and run a little bit with it, right? Or if he is hit very early, it's just not going to be as hard as it is nowadays. Now, on the other other hand, of course, they're not wearing padding. Right? right. So it all kind of balances out. But that's another thing, too. Maybe this is actually a good revelation. Maybe that kicking game was able to be more emphasized back then because special teams were so viable. You know, returns were just more viable in those days. Yeah, that's true. As opposed to now. Good so point. Maybe, maybe that's it. But again, it's just like this is what's great about about football history and going back, calling back to the beginning. This is what kind of sucks when modern shows leave this stuff out is, wow, you know, it's a totally different game, but still really freaking interesting. You know, just, and a guy like Grange, you know, I would argue, because a lot of people like to make this argument. I think a dude like that has transferable skills. I think a dude like that could have played in the 50s, no question. And then probably with training and, and diet and whatnot, might have been a decent contemporary player. You know, I kind of, I kind of feel about Grange the way I feel about Lou Gehrig. You know, I think that Lou Gehrig, you give a guy like that modern, you know, you take him to the present, you give him all the modern stuff, he'd be just as good. I kind yeah. of feel that way about Grange too. Yeah, I, I think you're you're right. I mean, and this game's a perfect example that the the you know everybody was worried about Grange. They were preparing for him and uh, you know scheming to stop him. And the guy was a gamer. He ended up having all three scores uh, for yeah. Illinois. Um, <laughs> he had 300 yards of uh, offense by himself. You know, scored all the points. And you know what more can you ask of a guy when they're keying on him? And he still performs in excels above everybody else. That's that's pretty amazing. The only the only guy that could outdo that was him in Michigan, right? Right. Yeah. You're right. That was, that was it. Like that was the that was the only game, single game better than this, probably that whole year, yeah. nineteen twenty four in college football. And and you weren't lacking stars in nineteen twenty four season. I mean, you had oh, no. Ernie Ernie Nevers playing out on at Stanford right. on the West Coast. You had the Four Horsemen of Notre Dame, you know, in in full gallop. You know, at that time they were becoming famous. That time, um, you know, great Army teams. Uh, you know, some other East Coast teams were were playing pretty strong ball too. So they weren't. And there were some teams in the South that had some great yep. players. And, yeah, this uh, was really. Again, talking about the 20s, the 20s is really this great rise of the Southern teams uh, due to, again, teams we take for granted nowadays, due to expanded rail travel and things like that, you know, just, just advances in technology and whatnot. Also, being past the Spanish flu in World War I helped a lot, too, as, you know, sort of we're learning today with certain things. Um, that helps as well. That really gave a lot of access to people. And again, you know, this is when football is really starting to come of its own. You know, uh, before, like, really the 1910s, uh, football is thought to be, you know, it's a substitute for war for amateur gentlemen. You yeah. know, and uh, right about this time, it's becoming a national pastime. Uh, people are playing it, like, in schoolyards and stuff. And in fact, at this time, well, this was a bit earlier, but in the aughts, this was when Teddy Roosevelt and uh, got together with several uh, college presidents, not athletic department presidents, college presidents, to decide whether football should be legal 
<laughs> in America because so many people, normal people, were getting obsessed with it and then, you know, cracking their heads over. Because football is a dangerous game, especially when you're out playing with bats or coaches. Yeah, right. it, it's 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 a dangerous game. So, you know, again, at this point, this is a generation moved from making the game safer in the aughts. And so now it's becoming really a national pastime. And uh, despite what Orville Mulligan says, it's not white on the radio as often uh, as it would become just a few years later. But it is starting to be uh, broadcasted on the radio as well, which, of course, is huge. Yeah, huge for space. definitely. Huge. Definitely. Now, and uh, like we said, this, this well, maybe we didn't say yet, but this game ended up in a 21-all tie. And I think that just brings more emphasis to what a great game it must have been to see. And uh, too bad we don't have video on it to, to go back and watch it <laughs> now because uh, I'm sure it was a tremendous game all around. Well, that's what's fun about uh, about researching this stuff is that ultimately I think what we did in bringing this game to life was basically just doing what like every kid or every person who read the write-ups was doing. You know, I'm just imagining what it looked like, you know, um, in huge games like this, you know, the write-ups are thorough, you know, Associated Press is giving like 2000 words to this game. You know, again, like, like really unheard of at the time. And uh, that's a lot. You can really like feed your imagination on that. And, and you know, I don't mean to beat a dead horse, but this might be something nice that folks could do in the future when they have a situation like this is just do a recreation. You know, I mean, geez, you've got Madden. I mean, you, you mean to tell me that a producer couldn't make like a nice recreation of this in digital? I mean, you know, or, or something, you know, you know, like like give us the X's and O's or, or something. You know, you could recreate the play by play like we do. You 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 could you could visualize that and just call it out. Um, you know, I I when I was a kid, I heard this on the radio a few times. Uh, there was the famous example of the boxing tournament, of the all-time heavyweight boxing tournament, which was just computer results being read by a couple of guys on the radio. You know, they're going, oh, and with a left and a right. And the computer, the computer sheet says, jab left, jab right. And mm. these guys are having to explain it. Well, that's the same thing as this, right? Um you know, you're just reading the, the newspaper and you have to imagine it, which is not to be pretentious and the old guy on the lawn. But this is really something that's lost when you have such easy access to everything. Right. No imagination required. Right. And and of course, the danger to that is that, you know, you, you learn to think about things in one way. A uh, bit of a tangent. But you watch the uh, Ken Burns baseball miniseries, and you get to, of course, my favorite episode, which you can well imagine, of course, is the Negro League episode, the Shadow Ball. I think it's part six or part five of the series. And there's a lot of good stuff in there. But the thing is, you come away from that and you go, okay, Satchel Page, Josh Gibson, Homestead Grays, Kansas City Monarchs, this is the story of black baseball and it's just like no 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 there's just so much stuff out there you know about these guys and these teams for which no images exist you know but there's this whole history out there that's just sitting there just legendary players and games and, and incidents and and the, at the same time like connecting with real history and like real events and whatever it's just wow it's just fantastic so really one of one of the great things about just going back to these old games like this and just imagining a, a, a really a different game of football that that you're forced to imagine because we just don't have the pictures right well uh, i think maybe this is a great opportunity to let the listeners uh, those of you that have not uh been exposed or heard heard this episode you go to your favorite podcast provider uh go to uh 
orvilmulligan.com is a great source for it. Uh, but Orville Mulligan sports writer, uh, we have a, a bunch of episodes on there, but three of them are uh, centered around a, a visit to Chicago by our, our main character, Orville Mulligan. And a part two of that series has this coverage of this November 8th game, 1924 of the university of Chicago entertaining and hosting uh, red Grange in Illinois. Uh, you know, just your imagination doesn't have to go too far because it's provided so well with, with the, the great writing and acting that's in this, you feel like you are listening to that game back in 1924 as close as I could. I think you could probably get to, you know, listening to it live. Uh, if there was such a radio broadcast, I'm not even sure if they did have a radio broadcast of it, but we have one provided for you now here in the 21st century to go back and listen to this 98 year old game uh, that was a, uh, so great with some some great stars in it some great coaching so actually that's a that's another interesting thing about this game too this game folks is in chicago okay now we've seen lots of stuff from the 1920s in american movies in american plays whatever you know the untouchables being one of the more famous ones but we've seen a lot of this stuff I believe that at this point, Philadelphia is still the most populous city in America, but Chicago is a close second if they are not number one. And the truth is, is that it was pretty much widely perceived as the coolest city in America. I mean, this was, I mean, I guess the equivalent of a game like this is something like maybe the 2000 World Series, the Subway Series in New York. You know, something like that, maybe the 1992 Barcelona Olympics, you know, where, where the, the setting is just so integral and symbolic of history and society and where the world is now. I mean, Chicago was all that stuff you see in the movies. Yeah. Yeah. People really did thought that, you know, they had all the cool fast cars, all the gangsters, all the best places to, to dance and the best clubs, you know, the best illegal alcohol. I mean, and the best sports. I mean, Jesus, Chicago was home to the 1917, 1918, 1919 Chicago White Sox, right? At that point, thought to be one of the great teams of all time. Um, you know, great sports in that city, too, at that time. But just really setting, really important for this as well. Uh, Chicago is a great town. It was my kind of town to be in, 1924. <laughs> and Red Grange's too. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I guess... Uh, you in conclusion, you know, this is uh, one of the greatest games ever played. Uh, and, you know, we have uh, some, some great uh, things to, to uh, replicate it and to, for people to go back and enjoy it and remember this game or be introduced to this game. And, uh, you know, you've heard a bunch of clips today from Orville Mulligan and there's so much more to the story folks. And I, I think uh, the whole series is just something I think you'll really enjoy. And, you know, even if you're not an avid sports fan, uh, it's something you can still enjoy because there's the entertainment value of going back to, you know, 1920s America and the Americana of the whole thing, nostalgia of it. And then bringing the sports element into it with all the greatest uh, stars of the day, I think it will be really enjoyable for just about anybody. And it's a, it's a very family friendly show and uh, you know, it's going to be, something that you can listen to a hundred years from now and still gain enjoyment on it. So uh, that's, that's what we've been trying to produce. And I think we've done a pretty good job of that and uh, have a lot of good people saying a lot of good things about it. So if you haven't uh, listened to it yet, you know, this Chicago episode is a great episode to, to dip your feet in the waters to see what it's all about. And uh, like Oz says, we, we cover a lot more sports, you know, that we, we have some episodes on the Negro leagues, like he said, and we get into uh, some of the you know, uh, major league baseball and professional football and boxing and just wide variety of, of things. And uh, a lot of stuff in between. It's very entertaining. I think you'll enjoy storylines, the characters, the whole thing. And again, you know, orvilmulligan.com is a great place to go or your favorite podcast provider, Orville Mulligan sports writer. You have just listened to Orville Mulligan, sports writer, an audio drama podcast from Number 80 Productions and the Sports History Network. Episode script and story by Oz Davis and Darren Hayes. 
Research by Joe Ziemba, Jennifer Taylor Hall, and Chris Willis. Orville Mulligan Sportswriter stars Doug Fye, Ilana Fye, and Eric Bodwell. This episode co-stars in order of appearance John Roberts, Forrest Hartle, Vernon Poitras, Joe Gallegos, Mindy Grossberg, Cademan Holland, Scott Leet, Mike Backus, Aubriana Lavalle, and Don MacGyver. Directing by Eric Bodwell. Sound recording and editing by Don MacGyver. The theme song of Orville Mulligan's Sportswriter is Dayton Triangle's Rag and was arranged and performed by Bruce Smith. Additional music provided by David Liso of Dynamo Stairs and Mike Monroe and Gene Monroe with Cletus Train Music. Orville Mulligan Sportswriter is produced by Darren Hayes and Oz Davis. Series concept by Darren Hayes. Keep your dial locked to this podcast station for the next exciting episode of Orville Mulligan Sports Writer, coming soon. there football fans this is ross the host of the pigskin tales podcast i just need a few moments of your time to talk about the host of the pigskin dispatch podcast darren hayes he's expanded the pig pen to search out information on the history of all team sports it's a quest to find out about the competitors teams and places chronicled throughout athletic history through the uniforms and gear the participants used and wore and he is taking you, the listener, with him on this educational journey to preserve sports history on the Sports Jersey Dispatch, found here on the Sports History Network. His newest podcast, called Jersey Dispatch, is all based on the jerseys that all the greats used to wear. You can find Darren Hayes and the Pigskin Dispatch podcast as well as Jersey Dispatch on your favorite podcast provider multiple times each week. So remember that, Darren Hayes, the host of the Pigskin Dispatch and Jersey Dispatch podcasts. It's found right here on the Sports History Network.